Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Sandrine Dixon de Cleve. She is a co-president of the Club of Rome. She also chairs the European Commission Expert Group on Economic and Social Impact on Research and Innovation. Sandrine is one of the 30 most influential women across the globe, driving change in the low carbon economy and promoting green business. She has spent her career working with and bringing together business leaders, policymakers, academia and NGOs to unpack complex challenges. Welcome, Sandrine. Thank you, Kai. It's good to be with you. In 1972, the Club of Rome, an organization of thought leaders from around the world, published their first Limits to Growth report. 1972 was also the year for the first UN Environmental Conference in Stockholm. 50 years from now, and our economic model is still establishing our societies and the planet. The ecological footprint of humanity substantially exceeds its natural limits every year. What are the lessons learned when we look back these 50 years, Sandrine? Thanks, Kai. That's always the loaded question, right? Um, and it's the one that, that everyone wants to have a very simple answer to. And of course, there is no simple answer. But maybe just a few qualifiers. First of all, I think that there was quite a movement during the publishing of The Limits to Growth, even at the political level. If you look, for example, at Bob Kennedy's speech that he gave when he was going to launch his presidential candidature, um, and where he talks about the fact that we needed to place a value on what mattered and that we needed to stop actually growing at all costs. So it wasn't just these incredibly esteemed modelers that came up with this system dynamic model and that really showed that we had to stop growing at the level that we were growing. But it was actually a message that was coming out of hope that we needed to do things differently. And I think one of the lessons is we enabled people to take that limits to growth message as a doomsday message. And many politicians used it as ammunition in saying that no, actually growth is good and limiting growth is going to make our living standards much worse, is going to not enable more people to be lifted out of poverty. The big lesson is we know that's not true. And actually that what we're seeing is the growth of a very small wealthy minority and a continuous inequality growth across many countries in the North, as well as the fact that actually just by having GDP growth, we're not necessarily giving greater well-being or quality of life and livelihoods in many countries, in fact, in most of the world. So that's been one of the key lessons, I would say, that we were not forceful enough in saying this is a message about how can we transform our lives in a good way and lift more people out of poverty and ensure that we have a better quality of life. Mm. But you can also see the, the latest decades, um, 
the new types of leadership and uh, many are also outside uh, the political party system, the democratic structures and, and with the strongman syndrome in Moscow, Beijing, Delhi, Brasilia, Budapest, Ankara, Riyadh and Washington. Many of these type of political leaders runs as an executive board with less democratic control. Or when we look at uh, Vladimir Putin, or on the other side, we have seen Greta Thunberg activating millions of young people on our planet. So what can we learn from this? I think what we need to think through is, first of all, we need to get out of our usual neoliberal constructs, both in the way in which we look at our economic system, the way in which we look at our financial system, and the way in which we look at our political system, to be quite frank. Um, you know, we have a lot of discussion and, and actually are now really trying to think through what is the right leadership model when you are faced with complex decision making, when you are faced with chaos, because we have a series of crises on our doorstep. We have what I call the three C's, right? We've got climate change, we've got COVID, and we've got conflict. And here in Europe, we can see the impact of the Ukrainian damage and the invasion by Putin in terms of not only food and energy, but the impact on value chains in terms of minerals. And, and we will have a continuous impact if we are not careful about the way in which we deal with the geopolitics around Ukraine. So that strong man, first of all, that, that kind of strong man handling of conflict and also of, of climate change, which is predominantly focused on authoritarianism, not for the good of people, planet or prosperity, but actually authoritarianism for the good of myself, for my own power and my own way and belief, rather than really thinking through what it means to lead. I think that is the question. We have to rethink what is real democracy? What is real leadership? And to be frank, I don't think we see it sometimes in our democratic leadership either, because we may have more citizen assemblies, which we absolutely need. We need to have more accountability. We need to have more access to decision-making by the people, for the people. But we also need to have across the board, north and south, east and west, enlightened leadership that come back to the basics of what it means to lead for people, planet and prosperity. And that is fundamental. And I don't see across the board, whether it be in the West or whether it be in other countries that have authoritarian dictatorships, I don't see the real leadership that we need right now. What do you see in the gap between generations? Um, we, we, we see a lot of young people going outside the political parties or because of the political parties is a power uh, to change society, but you don't see many of the young people going into politics of today. Is it yeah, and that's a real shame. That's a real shame, Kai. And, and I think that, uh, I mean, we are seeing some examples, right? We have many, for example, in the European Parliament and a growing amount of younger politicians that are coming in. We are seeing in some of our new prime ministers and presidents across the globe, much more younger politicians also that are coming in. I think the, the voice of the youth and the voice of leadership coming from the youth is so important. And it shows not only just the voice of the youth, but also the way in which we're now realizing 
that we need to shake things up at a variety of different levels. But this kind of short-term decision-making, knee-jerk reactions coming from policymakers, but also business leaders needs to be completely shaken up. And that actually citizens and scientists and thought leaders and economists need to start saying enough is enough. We need to plan for the long-term. We need to understand how we build resilience within our political systems and within our economic and our financial systems. Again, that truly looks at the crises at hand, the tipping points that we have in the area of climate, in the area of health, in the area of social tipping points. Because a lot of the analysis that the Club of Rome is doing now, and that's why the youth voice is so important, is demonstrating actually that it will be social chaos and social tipping points that could be our greatest demise, not necessarily environmental tipping points if we don't do this properly. Let us go into a little bit of the light of the Club of Rome as, a, as an organization and thought leadership. And uh, of course, 1972, the world didn't look like it looks today. And uh, we, we have internet, we have uh, opportunities for people to be connected. How has uh, the Club of Rome changed its way to work as a think tank under these years? Thank you for that question, Kai, because I think there have been many big changes in the Club of Rome. Um, the first is obviously that uh, already three and a half years ago, myself and Mampela Ramfele were elected as, first of all, the first Club of Rome female presidents. So bringing diversity into the leadership of the Club of Rome, but also into its membership was fundamental. The other key change is that uh, I am the youngest president, believe it or not, Whereas Mampela is my wise senior of 20 years older than me. And so within the club, what we're trying to do is create that intergenerational dialogue and bring in more youth, ensure that we have many more thought leaders from across the globe that are representing both most of the world. So Southern regions, Eastern regions, as well as the West, we have for the moment still too many of our members actually because of the essence of the club and its birth in Europe, European members and, um, and North American members. So really broadening the diversity from a geographical perspective and then very much broadening it from a diversity perspective. Now, the other key change within the club is that we realized that all of that incredible thought leadership was not being translated into action in the way that it should. And because we are in the midst of a decisive decade, that we have to get this right, that we need to bring systems thinking to the foreground, that we need to ensure that we deal with the crises that we have, all of which, by the way, were predicted in the limits to growth, because the limits to growth clearly says that during the 2020s, we will start to see deep collapse in many of our systems. So this is the moment where the Club of Rome must come back and indicate where we got things wrong because we have to admit our failures and where we actually have opportunities to completely transform, to shift our economic system, to shift our financial system, to shift our political system as we were speaking about and to bring more people on the journey. And that's the exciting work that we're doing now through our key hubs. So we have 
impact hubs that are focusing on rethinking economics, rethinking through our financial system, ensuring that we look at the planetary emergency and the key targets and timetables that we need to actually have in place, and then looking at the role of youth, integrating the youth into our decision-making, but also their voice, which is so important and the things in which they feel are important. And then very much looking at how we think through and visualize the civilization of the future. You have 45 reports under the years. And um, what do you do more than reports? Uh, you'd say, you named impact hubs. And is that a part of the way you change your organization? Or are we going to see uh, other types of methods and, and the way you are working uh, the time to come? Yes, so absolutely. The Impacts Hub are a shift from just actually publishing incredible reports. It's translating those reports into action and, and deliverables to ensuring that actually the thought leadership within those reports, and I can give you an example. We now are coming out with a series of, and we have over the last four years, of very short policy briefs. We've done one on well-being. We've done one on the planetary emergency with key suggestions based on sound science for what needs to happen now. So targets and timetables, but also deep analysis that comes out with recommendations. Uh, we've come out with a series of different reports in the area of finance and how we change finance, but also how we look at the civilization that we want to have. How do we actually create that civilization of the future? What are the short-term levers that are going to enable us to get there? So these are some of the different reports that we've come up with. In addition to that, we're more actively engaged now in policy thinking and policy making. So I was a co-chair at the UN Food System Summit and continuously honed in on systems thinking and resilience. But we are very much engaged at the European policymaking level, coming up with a compass, a systems compass that we worked on with partners to very much show how can we translate the European Green Deal into action? What does that look like? How do you optimize the interrelationship between the food system, the energy system, the mobility system, and not just think about net zero, but think about the social implications and also the implications on other countries. So this is some of the work that we're doing. Thought leadership is also a question that uh, had been followed you and in your career under the years. And, and can you give the listener a little bit of a view of the experience, how to be a leader in different types of organizations? What should the young listener think about leadership when they growing up and going into their, uh, to be a part of something as a change maker? I always take that uh, question with a great deal of humility. And I think that that's the number one focus of a leader is to be humble. Uh, I think that unfortunately, we don't have many leaders who integrate humility into the way in which they lead, because we can only evolve and we can only learn from others. If we take our role as leaders responsibly, then again, we need to think about who we're leading and not just continuously be caught up in our own ego. 
And again, that is something that I find if we have enlightened leadership, and we do see some, whether they be business leaders that really understand, like our initial founder of the Club of Rome, Aurelio Pache, that uh, the way you are a business leader is not just to think about profit, but actually to think about what is the role and responsibility of your business within the economy? How will it actually affect people's lives and livelihoods? The same question can be asked of a policy decision maker. What is your role as a policymaker? How are you going to ensure that people's lives and livelihoods are enhanced by your decision making? How are you going to ensure that actually the planet continues to thrive and survive? What is the way in which you can work with others in order to enhance your leadership? Because we can all learn from others. And we have to bring in that multitude of thinking and then translate it into action. For me, what I'm really seeing is lacking now is that we all have these lofty objectives that are coming out of our policymakers in terms of the planetary emergency, whether it be net zero, climate neutrality, biodiversity loss, reversal, et cetera. But then when it becomes difficult, do we see the leaders step up to the plate and truly implement the mechanisms, the tools that we have in place, whether it be taxation policies, elimination of certain subsidies, whether it be the way in which we bring in new technologies and enable those technologies to thrive, shifting of capital. Every time I see that the minute it gets difficult, because policymakers and also now business leaders are so caught up in short-term profit cycles and decision-making cycles, they don't actually bite the bullet. And so that for me is also a problem. Having the courage to follow through and not worry about whether you will be reelected. Instead, bring people on the journey. Ensure that you continue to maintain what you have promised that you will deliver and deliver it because the planet's not gonna wait for us to get it right. And right now we are faced with the greatest existential risk to our survival. One of the hubs that you're talking about, uh, one of the impact hub, uh, uh, and some of the work you are doing there is uh, also connected to young leadership. Uh, what can you describe a little bit more about what are you doing to to reach out to the young leaders around the world? You know, Kai, I think that um, again, that word humility has to come in here. First of all. We're doing our best to bring as many young leaders into uh, the Club of Rome, but also to work with young leaders. They have so much to teach us. That is the big learning cycle that we all need to go into. That's what an intergenerational dialogue is about. So what we're doing with young leaders is listening. What we're doing with young leaders and young people is enabling them to come together to support each other. You know, we have this organization that we've set up, helped set up called the 50%, because we have to remember that our generations, young generations, make up 50% of the globe. And the 50%, what are they doing? Well, they are running their own programs. 
But most importantly, what I find phenomenal is they immediately decided to put in place a peer-to-peer -peer guidance and supporting mechanism because of climate anxiety, because of future anxiety, because of basically the fact that we have now the highest amount of burnouts and suicides that we've ever seen amongst our youth. For me, that's a beautiful way that young people are actually steering the future. They realize that we have to work on each other's well-being before we can actually go out and save the world while they're still saving the world. And I find that quite amazing and so courageous. We have set up a very large report and program, which is called the Earth for All Project. And the Earth for All Project is something I'm incredibly proud of. Um, I have been one of the main steers and leads of the Earth for All Project. And what we've tried to do through that project is, is really um, quite phenomenal. One is build on the systems dynamic modeling within the limits to growth which was called the, the world model and, and look at how we can integrate much more thinking around poverty, inequality, empowerment and other key areas. And so that model, which is now called the Earth 4 model, which was developed by Jürgen Rander as one of the core authors of the Limits to Growth, um, has been coming together and looking at the system dynamic interactions between in particular of poverty, inequality, empowerment, food and energy. Food and energy being the key two areas where we need to ensure that we continue to have that sustenance, very important for our lives and livelihoods. And what's coming out of this project is that by putting, and we put together a high level commission of thought leaders from across the globe, those thought leaders and economists stress tested the model and have been working very hard to think through, okay, what would be the five key turnarounds, the ones that I've just mentioned to you, in order to ensure that we can get out of the mess that we've created, to ensure that we actually do get to net zero poverty, to ensure that we do get to net zero biodiversity loss and net zero um, carbon. And, and so that is what we've been doing together. We will be actually publishing those results in September, we will be at Stockholm plus 50 with a very clear statement on Earth for All and what it actually means in practice because we've come up with policy recommendations and tools and mechanisms for policymakers to really meet those turnarounds and start to have a key impact. And I think I'll say that the latest, most important aspect of that is how do we all get to a well-being economy? We now have five governments that have been brave enough to go beyond growth indicators, beyond GDP, and who have looked and embraced social indicators and environmental indicators. Those are the, what we call the we all governments or the well-being governments. Who are, they? Those, who are they? So those governments are Scotland, Iceland, Finland, Wales, and um, New Zealand. And uh, four of them, of course, are run by women. But very importantly, what we see is our original call in the limits to growth and our original calls through the last 50 years 
of indicating that we need to stop using growth as the only indicator. We now have examples at the government level of what we can do. And these five turnarounds help us get to that, help us get to a well-being economy. And that's absolutely essential. So what is the difference if you compare this report uh, to limits to growth? So the, the difference with this particular report is, I think, most importantly, that it's not just going to be a report. It's not just going to be a book. Um, the message is build on the limits to growth. It goes far beyond that. And I think one of the key learnings from the limits to growth, we really realized that we needed to better understand the issues of poverty and inequality, which are hampering us from moving forward. We have to lift more people out of poverty and we need to make sure both in, again, the North and the South that this is happening. So the big focus of this report is on how we do that. You know, what type of mechanisms like a universal dividend, um, where are the, the, the ways in which we can do that? And we, we show actually that we have two scenarios, right? We have a too little, too late scenario, which shows basically if we continue as business as usual, and if we tinker around the edges with certain policy recommendations, we're not gonna get there. And then we have our giant leap scenario that, that looks at how we really build resilient societies and then how do we build in these policy recommendations. So for example, for ending poverty, what we're calling for is all low-income countries have a GDP growth of at least 5% per year, um, and, but each person has to be making $15,000 a year. So we're calling for something very specific. And then we underpin that with what does that look like in practice or for addressing gross inequality, the wealthiest 10% should take no more than 40% of national incomes. And then we show what we mean by that. Um, achieving gender equality by 2050. When we look at the equity and the power empowerment issues and population issues, we know very well that we need to give women much more of a voice across the globe, that we need to empower women so that they have the rights over their own bodies, but also the right of being part of the economy. And that means bringing more women forward, bringing them through education, and ensuring that these rights are honored at many different levels. Transforming the food system into regenerative agriculture and making sure that our land is 50% regenerative by 2030. So these are some big calls. Ensuring that we transition our energy under a carbon law pathway. So cutting greenhouse gases 50% over the next decade um, and the next decades after that, and then reaching net zero by 2050. And then what does that look like? And those are when we get into taxation structures, when we get into sanctioning, um, or when we get into the getting rid of certain perversities in our existing market, like certain subsidies. Hopefully this is going to really shift the trillions of dollars of investment in low-income countries that we really need. Um, focus very much on redistribution, which again, we very much need, uh, provide that economic protection and the buffers that we need for certain vulnerable parts of our society. 
and, and ensure that we truly innovate. And I'll close with the fact that this obsession with only technology as the solution for the transformation towards decarbonization um, is absolutely wrong. First of all, we need to already put in place the technology we have. But in addition to that, we have to shift our economies and also our financial system to ensure that we actually don't overconsume, to look at demand structures, not just look at supply. So finally, uh, Sandrine, how do you think a politician or a citizen or, or business leader or a civil servant can use Earth for All report in their work? Yeah, so this is where, again, this is the other novelty about this work. Um, rather than just come out and publish a book and then hope that actually people will read it. And we know more and more, by the way, Kai, unfortunately, that a lot of people don't read books anymore. So one is obviously to make this fully available online and to enable as many people to have access to this material. But, but the other, and we have a website and we will be including within that the possibility for the politician, for the citizen, for businesses to engage, as well as scientists, by the way, um, and to constantly renew the thinking, not only in terms of the outputs, but also the model itself. So it's going to be a very continuous and engaging process. In addition to that, we will have a game that we are putting together. And you've seen that recently the Financial Times released their game on climate. We will be doing the same on, on Earth for All, which will enable, again, much more interaction. We're moving out with a large scale campaign where we will actually work with decision makers. We will work with business leaders to unpack what we actually have as our key recommendations. And, and I think that this book will speak to everyone, but also the, the way in which we reach out, hopefully, will also speak to everyone because we will have citizen assemblies which will actually discuss the recommendations from the book. So our idea is to make sure that the messaging, the narrative, the recommendations are really coming out in a large way across social media, across all of the communication channels and then that we work specifically with different groups in order to enable them to understand what it is we're trying to say. Great to have you as a guest, Sandrine, and interesting talk and, and also insight for a lot of us who are trying to be transformer in our society. And it was a pleasure to have you in Transformers podcast today. Thank you very much, Sandrine. Thank you so much, Kai, for the opportunity. And I look forward to speaking to you and your listeners again. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast and you can expect about two programs a month and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable so find out more visit my homepage kaiembren.org thank you for listening <laughs>